Well, welcome everyone. Good morning, good evening. I hope you had a lovely Shabbat. We're so happy to be learning with you again. This is the seventh of eight uh, Joseph and Jacob, a journey through Genesis with Rabbi David Silber. Um, as you come into the Zoom, I will uh, it, I will invite you to become a panelist. It might just take me a minute or two after I've said all of this to invite everyone, but I will invite everyone to become a panelist. That just means that if you wish, you can uh, open up your camera so we can see your smiling faces, um, or you can and you can unmute yourself when Rabbi Silver invites questions or comments. When you're not speaking, we just ask you to stay on mute to minimize the background noise so we can all hear each other. Um, and if you want to, you can put your questions and your comments in the Zoom chat, or if you're joining us on Facebook Live on the Facebook comments, and I will bring them to the Zoom. Um, the sources, I will be sharing the sources on the screen on Safaria, but of course you're welcome and encouraged to follow along in your own Tanakh. And Thank you very much. <clears throat> good morning, everybody, or good evening, whatever the case may be. So we're in the uh, 45th chapter of Breshit. Joseph has revealed his identity to his brothers. <clears throat> He's made a lengthy speech. Among other things, he says that this was all God's plan. God has sent me uh, before you to bring about, uh, to keep you alive and to allow you to have an extraordinary deliverance. That's how Joseph uh, sees it. Of course, we raise the question that, does this really get them off the hook? Well, that's a wonderful question, but from Joseph's perspective, it would appear, at least how he frames it, this is part of a divine plan. We're all part of uh, God's plan, and therefore, uh, they should not uh, see themselves as guilty. And then Joseph promises to take care of them. And he instructs them to hurry up and bring my father down. And he says to them in a very striking uh, verse in chapter 45 in the 10th Pasuk, this is what you should say to my father, to Yaakov. He says, I will sustain you there. It means in Egypt. There are five more, uh, there are five more years of famine. The rest of you and all that you have become impoverished. In the previous verse, he said, and you will dwell in the land of Goshen. We spoke about Goshen, be closeness or nearness. You'll be near me, says Joseph. You, Jacob, you, my father. Your children, your grandchildren. And your animals and all that you possess. So there, here are the two points. One I made last week, one I want to add. What I, point I made last week is that when Yaakov, when Yosef speaks, tells the brothers to speak to Yaakov, he says, tell my father, I will take care of you and your children and your grandchildren. And then the, the cattle and the possessions. So the children are the ones he's talking to. He's saying to his brothers, tell my father, I'll take care of you and your children. So the point is when you hear such a statement suggests that fundamentally he's gonna take care of them, his brothers, primarily because of an obligation to his father. I'm gonna take care of you and your children. And um, yes, he does hint before that he's going to, he's there to bring about a great deliverance and all that. 
However, when you're a brother hearing that, say to you, my father, I'll care for you, father, and your children, that leaves open the possibility that in the case where Jacob no longer needs Joseph's uh, help, namely he's dead, then you gotta wonder whether the obligation to his brothers also uh, dissolves. In other words, is the obligation to the brothers primarily of brother to brother? Or is it an obligation of son to father and father's children? So this verse certainly suggests at least the possibility that you, one could hear it as Joseph saying, as long as my father's alive, you're okay. And that's a very interesting idea for two reasons. First of all, because that's what we're remembering earlier in the book of Breshit, that's what Esau seems to say after he discovers that Yaakov has taken his blessings. And the Torah says that Esau was very angry and he said, when my father's days of mourning come, and it may happen soon because Isaac said to Esau, I want to bless you before I die. It sounds like Yitzchak thinks he may die soon. And then Esau says, I will kill my brother. What it sounds like, he says, as long as my father's alive, I'm not going to do anything to harm my, my brother because he's Yaakov's son. But once my father disappears from the scene, then I'll kill my brother, which is what the brothers think Yosef will do with the last chapter of Breshit. Because after Yaakov dies, the brothers say, maybe Joseph hates us and will repay us for all the evil. We'll get to that chapter later, but so it's very similar to what Esau seems to be saying. Um, and the brothers do believe that Yosef plans to kill, kill them, which is why they say in the last chapter, uh, our father commanded before he died to, to, that you should forgive your brothers. So that's a very interesting, uh, that's an important observation. And we will, we'll, 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 when we get to the last chapter after in the next semester, hopefully we'll finish Breshit and then we will deal with that in some detail. Um, the second point, that's point number, I mentioned that last week. Now the new point I wanna make is this. He instructs Yaakov not just to bring himself down with his children and grandchildren, but with the cattle. And I would also uh, emphasize what Joseph said in verse number 10, for ye karov Eli, you'll be near me. So what Joseph proposes to his father and to his brothers is that you're gonna be near me, the land of Goshen. Remember the word Vayigash, which appeared both in Joseph's speech and Judah's speech. So Joseph has come down to Egypt and I will, you'll be under my governance, under my, my protection, and I will care for you. Joseph wants the brothers to come to Mitzrayim to give them food, but he wants them to be near him. That's what Joseph wants. But we'll see that there's someone else in the picture who might have a different idea about bringing Joseph's family down to Egypt. So this is where we left off last week. So now we'll pick up um, in, uh, Let's begin with verse number 16. Uh, verse, verses 14 and 15 just say, He fell on the shoulders of Benjamin, embraced Benjamin and cried. And Benjamin, literally his neck, he embraced him around the neck and Benjamin embraced Joseph. That's in verse 14. In verse 15, he kissed his brothers and he cried. Joseph cries. And afterwards, 
the brothers spoke to Joseph. There is an interesting contrast being drawn in between verses 14 and 15, which is in verse 14, it's reciprocal. What Joseph does to Benjamin is what Benjamin does to Joseph. Benjamin being his full brother, Binyamin Achiv. In verse number 15 though, he kisses his brothers and he cries, right? In 14, he cries and falls on Benjamin's neck and Benjamin cries and falls on his neck. But in 15, he kisses each brother and he cries. And then you expect it to say, and the brothers did the same, but it doesn't say that. It says, Then the brothers spoke to Joseph. So it does leave open, of course, this strong possibility that it's not reciprocal, that there's something, maybe Joseph's speech, maybe their own guilt, remorse or whatever, but it's not reciprocal. And that's an important question that will persist till the very end of the book and beyond, which is, are the brothers and Joseph fully reconciled? Or one might even say, are the brothers and Joseph ever fully reconciled? We have to remember that in the larger story of the Bible, in the early prophetic writings and beyond, there, is, there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of Judah, which is in the south. And then there's the kingdom of Israel, sometimes called the kingdom of Ephraim, kingdom of Joseph, basically, which is in the north. And the two separate kingdoms, the majority of the tribes are with Joseph, the minority are with Judah, but the Judah's kingship persists, David, etc. And there's the exile of the other tribes. So there's always this potential split within, within Israel between Joseph and Judah, not only in the later writings, but even in the Chumash itself, later on in the Torah, one also gets the sense that there's always some kind of tension between Joseph and the brothers. And that's a tension if we're gonna be one nation, which we have to overcome. So the Chumash does not downplay this. Yes, there's gonna be some kind of reconciliation at the end. And we'll talk about that. That's the way the book will end. Or one of the endings of the book at least, but it's never that the tension is fully removed. And when it, one gets a sense here as well, of the, there's a difference between his brother from Rachel, which is Benjamin, and then there are the other brothers. And Joseph is forgiving them in a sense. He says to them, listen, it's part of God's plan. And he means it. I have no doubt that he means it, but the question is how one hears all this. So this is something we'll keep open for the future. Okay, now we come to the second point over here in this chapter, after which I'll stop and take comments or questions. It says, So remember that Joseph could not contain himself and he cries out, I am Joseph. And we're told that all of Pharaoh's court heard Joseph saying this. And now we're told in verse number 16, Hakol, the sound, the noise, the news reaches the house of Paro, saying, and they, they understand, Joseph's, Joseph's brothers have come. What's the response? So we're told that when Pharaoh and his court hears this, we're told specifically about Paro, the matter was good, was told in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of Pharaoh's servants. And now Paro will speak to Yosef. Tell your brothers to do the following. This is Paro speaking now. 
Okay, what the word ta'anu means is a dispute here between the commentaries, the medievals about the word ta'anu. It either means to load up, load up your animals, load up your animals. Uchuvo arts of Canaan, that's one understanding. And some of the commentaries, the Ebenezer ta'anu is to pierce. Pierce the animals means to point them, get them to go quickly. It's part of this rush. Either way, either load up the animals or hurry the animals, hurry the animals. <laughs> And go to the land of Canaan. Uhubo Arso Canaan, go back to Canaan. And take your father, Ubatechem, and his house. Remember that Jacob always referred to his family as his house. Now the Torah uses the same language. Bring your father and his Batechem and your and your, your houses, Ubo Eli, and come to me. And I will give you the two of the goods, the good of the land of Egypt, and you will eat, live off, the fat of the land. So that's Paro's suggestion. Paro likes the fact, and servants like the fact, that Joseph, um, Joseph's brothers have arrived, and he invites. He seconds what Joseph says, and he invites Yaakov to come down to Mitzrayim. It's important that he have the permission of Paro, no doubt about it. And that's what he says. Tell you, load up, load up the animals, bring the bring your father, and Batechem, and the houses, the holes, come to me, and I'll give you the good of the, the two various Mitzrayim. Now Paro continues. <laughs> You are thus commanded, says Paro. He's talking to Yosef. This is what you should do. Asu is right. This is what you should do. Take wagons from the land of Egypt, for the children, for your wives, and carry your father down and come down here. And then Paro continues in verse number 20, never mind your belongings. Forget about your belongings. Don't worry about that. For the goods, the two, the good. Sometimes the word two means tov means good or goods. So it seems like a very magnanimous, a very generous gesture on the part of uh, of Paro. But as is often the case, and we have the expression Dvarim Bago, there's something else here as well. And this, in my view, is the beginning of trouble for Joseph. This little speech of Paro over here. This is where things get very sticky for Joseph. And this is perhaps one of the reasons that Joseph, one of the reasons that Joseph was hesitant to reveal his identity. He tries to withhold his identity. Because if you look what Paro is saying over here, it is two words are very interesting. And that is, he says, take your family, take your botechem. And in verse number uh, 18, ubo elai, and come to me. Now come to me can be read as come to me. What Paro was saying is, I want you to come, they can come, they can come. I welcome them, but they've got to come to me. That is to say, they're not coming to you. They're coming to me. And 
one interesting distinction between what Joseph says and what Paro says is the following, that what Joseph emphasized is take you, come down and bring your cattle with you, right? What Joseph is saying is based and come and you come to me, be near me. What Joseph seems to be saying is the life that you had in the land of Canaan, that life, you can continue the same kind of life here in Mitzrayim, in the land of Goshen, the land next to me, next to Joseph. I understand you and I know what you want and you can uh, live the same kind of life. But what Paro says is something different. What Paro emphasizes, and especially in verse number 20, don't worry about your possessions. Don't worry about your possessions. For the good of Mitzrayim is yours. So Paro seems to be saying something very different. Leave your past behind, leave your possessions behind, and you can come here because you'll be, you'll be, assimilated into, into the land of Egypt. And I would add to this, so here we have a disagreement between Paro and what Paro wants is, he sees a talented Joseph, or he would call himself not Paneach, and he says to himself, well, if Joseph is so talented, probably some of these other brothers are no, are no less talented. So let's bring him down to Mitzrayim and let's incorporate them into Egypt. And Joseph's been very good for Paro. He's going to Joseph will maneuver all the property over to Paro, the next two chapters down the road. And Joseph saves Egypt, etc. empowers Paro. Who, who, I can only imagine what the other brothers will do. So leave, your, leave, the, leave the stuff behind. You come here and you become Egyptian. Leave all your possessions behind. That's what Paro wants. Now there's something else interesting over here. So right away over here, you get a sense that there's gonna be, this is the point of conflict. This is, and this will, we'll see this later on. This is going to be a problem because this is the larger issue of maintaining your own identity in a foreign culture. And we, this is Joseph's, probably the main issue of Joseph, what's up, not Panea, who is Joseph? But now Paro wants to do the same to the other brothers. And there is a word here, one of the key words in Paro's little speech. And the word that appears three times is this word. Uh, first, we're told that Paro and his servants hear this, and we're told um, in verse number 16, the matter was good, was told in the eyes of Paro, in the eyes of uh, his servants. And then when Paro speaks, Paro says to Joseph, um, he says, take bring your father and his houses, but the bayit probably refers to the family, come to me. So we have again the word tuv. We had the word tov in verse number 16. Now we have the word tuv in verse number 18. And in the last verse, verse number 20 in Paro's speech, says, don't worry about your possessions. Once again, the word tuv. So we have one tov and two tovs, tov of bet, three times. And why is this significant over here? Apart from what I mentioned, because it recalls another story. It recalls not the story of this paro, but the story of a previous paro, the first paro we encounter in the Torah. And that's the story where Abraham, because of a famine, decides to come down to the land of Egypt. 
parallel to the story over here. There's also a famine, a very strong famine in this case, of Kaved in each case, terrible famine. This is a famine that's no one ever seen like this famine. And remember in the chapter 12, Avram turns to Sarah and says, he's on the way, he's already headed to Egypt. He's about to go to Egypt. And Paros and Avram says to Sarah, do me a favor, he says, when the Egyptians see you, they're going to uh, see you, you're a beautiful woman and they're gonna see you, uh, keep going a little bit more, stop one second, that's it. Vayok, you are verse number 12 of twelve twelve chapter 12, verse 12. When the Egyptians see you, they see this beautiful woman, they'll kill me and they'll take you. That's what Avram thinks awaits them in Mitzrayim. Therefore, he says, please say you're my sister. He says, why? That it be good for me on your account. And I live thanks to you. Now, again, the question in that verse is, among other things, what does it mean, and the commentaries were divided. What do you mean that it go well for me? So the Ran in the Drash of Saran says, what he means to say is, it will go well for me, and, that, and by that I mean, I will live. I will live, because he said earlier, he said earlier when they see you, they'll kill, they'll kill me and take you, say you're my sister, that it go well for me, yitavli, that is to say, that I will live. Maybe. Rashi has said a different thing. Rashi says, they'll give me gifts. Now, when you read the story further, they go to Mitzrayim, and they do see that she's very beautiful. And in verse number 15, but Pharaoh's officers see that she's praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman is taken to the house of Paro. And the next verse, Uli Avram Hetiv Bavura, and because of her, Avram, it went well, was told for Avram. What does that mean he was told? Not that he lives, but rather he got gifts. Fine. So in other words, the word tov over there, in the first encounter with, with Paro, uh, it, it was told for Avram, says the Torah. Perhaps ironically, <laughs> depends how you read his initial thinking. Is he saying, I will, it will be good for me in that I survive? Or is he saying, it'll be good for me and I'll survive? Rashi has the second way. In any event, so then it was good for Avram. We can read this ironically, not the way he thought. He thought he would survive, but it was good that he got the gifts, but it comes with a price. And the price is the taking of Sarah. The Ran in his famous Drusha, one of the Drushot Ran. The Rabbeinu Nisim has several drushot, which are very interesting. He, he defends Avraham. The claim he makes is that, and when we study the Avraham story, we discuss it at some length, the claim that he makes is that what Avraham is saying, say you're my sister, was in the Torah, maybe in the ancient uh, Near East, the brother negotiates for, for the marriage of the sister. As we see, for example, with Lavan and Rivka, that the servant talks primarily to Lavan, who's the brother. So what Avram points to the Rana is saying, listen, say you're my sister and, and they'll be negotiating and they'll give me gifts because they want me to agree to allow you to marry them. And then when the famine is receding, we'll catch the last train, you know, we'll get the, the last train back to Canaan. We'll take with us the goods and uh, you won't have to marry anybody. That's the Rana's defense of Abraham. I mean, one might say it's still a little bit 
uncomfortable with that, but that's the Ran. But Rashi says otherwise. Rashi's, Rashi's interpretation, as I understand it, is this. It says, listen, say you're my sister, and this way you will save my life. But in addition, in addition, I will also have a benefit from it. Yes, he mentions the benefit first. So that raises the question, okay, save your life. Why do you also mention the benefits? But here's my point anyway, relating to what we are reading now, which is that in the case of the first paro, the tov, we talked a lot about that. I can't get into all the aspects of tov over here. But what is important for our purposes is that in the Abraham story of chapter 12, he gets tov, or he gets tov, right? Tov means goods. Tov is good, and tov is goods. He gets the goods. He gets the animals. Tov, bakar, chabarim, avadim, shvachot. Later we're told he has gold and silver, etc. as well. He gets all kinds of gifts. But it comes with a price. And the price is the taking of, of Abraham's wife. Because that's what, that's the first story of Mitzrayim. And it's a story that reappears with Joseph in the house of Potiphar. That Joseph becomes the one who is, who is subject to the capture or the, the taking, etc. He Okay, he refuses. He ends up in jail. But the point is, coming back to our story over here, when you read that two stories together, and Paolo says to Joseph, essentially, if I'm correct, no, 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 no. Don't, 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 don't bring your possessions with you. Leave them behind because you'll get the tool. I'll take care of the tool. And my point is when Paro says there'll be told for you, there's a price attached. What exactly the price will be, who knows? We know what the price was in the first case. The price in the first case is the taking of Sarah. And the taking of Sarah, if you remember, at least as I understood it, understand it this way now as well is that the story of Sarah in Egypt, where she's a stranger who is taken by Paro, who knows for how long, and she's never gonna escape there unless God intervenes, which God does, that that story of Sarah, not Abraham, but Sarah, becomes the basis of the covenant of the Brit ben Habatrim, the covenant that God establishes with Abraham. And the covenant with Abraham comes with a price. Abraham says, with what shall I know that, we, that I enter into the covenant? And God's answer is, your descendants will be strangers, they will be enslaved, and they will be abused, inui, inui abdut and geirut, inui often in the Bible is sexual abuse. And where do we have such a story? That's the story of Sarah. The Torah didn't use that language in chapter 12, but it recasts it in that language. So the price you pay for the tov, for the tov, for the hetiv, was the gay with the Avdit and the Inui. And of course, that's exactly the price that the Jews are going to pay for coming down into Mitzrayim, being protected, getting the so-called Tov, and the first chapter of Shemot, not too far off. Vayavidu Mitzrayim, kasher yanu Inui and Avdut in chapter one, Gerud in chapter two. So here we have, it turns out, it sounds like a very magnanimous gesture on Paro's part. But when Paro makes a magnanimous gesture, there's always many, many strings attached. But in this particular case, we don't have to look that far because we see the governing word here of, of, of Tov with Paro. No, don't go to Joseph, says Paro, you come to me. Now later on, there's gonna be again, 
a question when the brothers do come down, and we'll see this not this week, but in the future. And then Joseph wants to, Joseph wants the brothers to stay with him. So he will instruct the brothers what to say to Paro. He tells them, you're going to go to Paro. You're going to say this. He's going to ask you this question. What do you do for a living? You're going to tell him this. And Paro's going to say, oh, you, uh, you, 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 you have animals to guard and to watch, your shepherds. You better stay in the land of Goshen. It's a very good place to stay. That's what Joseph says to the brothers. When we get to that portion in the Torah, we will see that Paro goes off script. He doesn't exactly say what Joseph thinks he's going to say. And there you, again, once again, we see the tension that emerges from the brothers coming down to Mitzrayim. Because Paro wants to co-opt everybody. And Joseph wants his brothers to be with him. And Joseph wants his father to be with him. And we're headed for trouble over here. Big time. Can we stop over here for a moment and take comments or questions? See these innocent verses. They're, not, they're never so innocent. You know what I mean? Okay, let's see if there are any comments or questions up to this point. Um, we have some interesting comments in the chat. Let's see um, Never says the divisiveness in Israel right now about the judicial reforms reminds me of this biblical divisiveness. Um, Gershon says uh, the premature exodus of the Manasites, a reflection of the Okay, maybe, do, do you want to read this out, Gershon? Because I, I feel like this goes above my head <laughs> with the things I can't well, pronounce. I was just wondering whether the premature exodus of the Bnei Menashe might have been a reflection of the fact that they rejected the leadership of Yehuda. And, that, and the reason why Aminadab is the person who is thought to have led B'nai Israel across the Yamsu. Right, so of course, first of all, that, that you're referring to the Medrash, that the, um, there were some who had a premature exodus from Egypt, that's not in the Torah. The Torah says nothing of the sort. That is, there is such a Medrash though, and there are actually several different Midrashim about it, whether it's the uh, rejection of a particular kind of leadership. I mean, the true leader is actually Moshe, who's not from Judah, but, uh, or whether it's a different point that the Medrash is making, which is certainly a point that appears throughout the Talmud, we don't know, we can never know exactly when redemption comes. Redemption is hidden from us, uh, whether it's a redemption from Egypt or the ultimate redemption. And Gemara talks about those people think they can figure out when the redemption is coming. So that those Midrashim are part and parcel of that larger rabbinic project to uh, to dissuade people from believing that they know exactly when when the Messiah is, is coming. That's a very, in our history, has been a very dangerous kind of thinking and people can be easily misled. So I think that's what lies behind that particular medrash over here. Um, yeah, as far as the situation in Israel is concerned, I'm not going to obviously talk about that endlessly, but it's obviously deeply troubling and I mean, it's part of the Joseph story. The question is, how can you bring people who have different points of view, different experiences uh, together, which is the, the, the real challenge in the Torah about creating a people. I mean, you have this over and over again. You have it in the story of Joseph, obviously, but we have it even later 
very end of the book of Bamidba, which is the lastly narrative of the Torah, um, the very last story at the end of Bamidbar is about the tribe of Menashe saying that we don't want daughters of Tzalafad to marry a different tribe because if they do that, then the husbands will take away property from us. That's the last story in the book of Bamidbar and Moshe finds a way to somehow negotiate it out. This creation of these cities of refuge, which is right near the end of the book of Bamidbar is another way. How do you have a society? Violence is always possible. How do you have an apparatus within society to enable people to live together, even if when there are tensions, even when there are uh, very serious uh, acts of violence taking place, how do we prevent this from spiraling out of control? How do you find a place for the Levian who are engaged in a civil war and they don't have land with the other tribes, they're sort of separated from the other tribes, but how do you find a place for those people within your land? The Book of Devarim, how do you find places for people who are on the margins? people who don't have, people who are impoverished, et cetera. What do you, all these are big issues that the Torah takes, on, takes head on. The Torah understands, obviously, in the book of Breshit is the foundational book, that people don't always get along with each other. The first brothers is a, is a fracture, is a murder. The Torah is well aware of potential for violence. The Torah suggests though, we have to find mechanisms to allow people, even with sharp disagreements, to live together. And this is really the Joseph story. So obviously, in terms of what's going on currently, which is on my mind all the time, uh, I was in Israel six weeks just recently and the big demonstrations, uh, without getting to the specifics of it, there's gotta be a way for people to compromise on each side and to reach an understanding, which is for the communal good. And what's happening is, for many reasons, don't want to get into, but uh, that's it's not happened yet. Um, and that's extremely unfortunate. It's a, obviously a failure of leadership from top to bottom. But we have to hope that, you know, that common sense will prevail. Although we know it doesn't always prevail. In any event, without getting into that, we could talk about that forever. Um, but it is obviously a very burning issue, and it's a burning issue here in the U.S. in terms of people with different points of view, not talking to each other, not even understanding the other point of view. So the Joseph story is appropriately, I mean, it's always relevant, but it's very relevant in today's world, maybe more than ever. Uh, anything else? Any other comments? I thought you were, so, sorry, I thought you were the, the tub, the two tubs, in, in so I'm not hearing you. Hello? Sorry. Yes. The two, the two tops of B'nai Israel of Abraham and B'nai Israel echo the fact that the Gemara tells us that a dream that begins with the letter the, about the letter Tet is a fortunate dream. I don't know. I have nothing to say about that. I don't. I don't know. Uh, is it possible that uh, in uh, verse nineteen, the uh, atatsuveta, that's the inflection point to the beginning of Avdut, because uh, it's Paro saying to uh, Joseph, 
you're a servant too. Um, and uh, in certain ways was perhaps Joseph getting a bit too big for his britches. And uh, uh, now Paro sees an opportunity to put him in his place and to say, I'm the boss. Uh, That's certainly true. And I would add that when Joseph spoke to his brothers, and we'll come back to this later, says, hurry up and tell my father about all my, all my greatness and all that. God has made me an Avla Paro, a father figure to Pharaoh and a master of his house and a ruler over Egypt. And as we commented, uh, we read those verses, it's not exactly the case. Joseph may think it's the case, but sure, certainly, I taught Suveto Zotasu, yes, I'm commanding you. Now, on the surface, he's, if you, if you don't read it carefully, you say, oh, yeah, I agree with Joseph. Yes, you have my permission. But the point when you read it more carefully, he's not saying that. And the problem, it puts Joseph in a difficult situation now because Joseph does not want this. Joseph wants his brothers to be near him. And Joseph will succeed in the end. In the short term, he does succeed. But Paro, as we will see, resents it. We'll get to this later on, but it's a good point. The, the Suveta is interesting. On the surface, it's all wonderful. Oh, terrific, Paro agrees. Um, now there's one other point I wanted to make here about verse 19, which is an interesting point, namely this business of sending the wagons. In the Hebrew, the word is agolot. And the agolot will figure later on in the chapter, we'll, we'll see that. This is verse 19, Paro commanding, that he giving permission to send wagons back to Canaan to bring all the people uh, back in the wagons. So he provides modes of transportation. Seems very magnanimous on Powell's part. From one perspective, it is. But we'll see later on that the Agolot perhaps have another significance as well. Um, fine, but let's just read a little bit more here. We'll get to the, uh, let's just continue with verse number. Rabbi. Yes. Sorry, I, I put a question on the chat. I don't think you ever got to it. Go um, you think Yosef intended uh, for the brothers, the family to come down and stay just during the Ra'av? Or this, in Yosef's mind, it was permanent or just temporary? Well, he puts it in terms of the family. He says it's five more years. I, the answer is it's a very good question. I don't know. He puts it in terms of the family. In verse number 11, he says, I'm going to take care of you for five years. So it's not. It's not coming down for a week or two. It's coming down for the extended period of time. Of course, over the course of the five years, things can, things can happen. And it's, it's very hard to know what Joseph's intention was. It's a very good question. I, I don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is that for whatever reason, and we'll get to this later on, the brothers don't leave. I mean, why don't they go back? In point of fact, they don't go back. Uh, I'm struck by the very last verse of Parshat Vayigash. It says, Vayeshev Yisrael, it's back in chapter 47, verse 27. Vayeshev Yisrael, Be'eretz Mitzrayim, Be'eretz Goshen. That's a very interesting verse from our perspective. And Israel dwelt, Vayeshev, in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. It mentions Egypt and Goshen. Vayeoch Hazubah. They acquired holdings, Achuzah. One might even say the grant holds them. So it sounds like, what it sounds like from that verse is whatever Joseph's intentions may have been. But the brothers, Israel, the people of Israel, become part of Egypt. That's a very striking term. 
when Abraham buys the grave for Sarah, we offer him a grave for nothing. Now, I don't want a grave, says Abraham. I want a chuzad keber. I want a possession of a grave. Hebron represents the possession in the story. Sarah's the field of Ephron, the grave of Sarah, representing a symbolic possession in the land. So what does it mean to say that they became connected to in the deepest sense Mitzrayim? It sounds like Israel, the brothers, maybe because of their material success, who knows? But they don't actually ever leave. It doesn't sound like they can't leave. It sounds like they choose not to leave. Uh, not that leaving is so simple, but but so again, the question is is a good one. Joseph specifically mentioned the famine. He says the five years of famine still to go. Thank and you. maybe we'll re, maybe we'll re revisit that later on when we get to the that verse of the, the very striking verse, Okay, now let's let's continue now. Verse 21. Um, okay. It says So they did they did this. And Joseph gave them these wagons upon Pharaoh's command. Pharaoh gave permission. And he gives them provision for the road. Now the Torah will tell us what he gave them for the road. Very striking once again. He gave them a change of clothing. And he gave Benjamin 300 kesef and five changes of clothing. We saw this earlier, by the way. When they were eating the meal with Benjamin, he gave Benjamin five times as much as he gave the others. Now, two comments over here. First of all, uh, the number five appears throughout the Joseph story. Throughout the, five seems to be a number identified with, uh, with uh, Mitzrayim. Five chalifots malot. Five times to Benjamin. Um, Joseph will send five brothers to speak to Paro. Five more years of famine. When Israel leaves Egypt, Chamushim, whatever that means, they leave Chamushim. So the number five, for whatever reason, speculate in the future, is a, is a Mitzrayim number. Number two, what is this business of giving them changes of clothing? So what strikes me over here, leaving the fact that he favors Benjamin once again, We've seen this throughout. He treats Benjamin differently. Okay, you understand that. But the change of clothing in particular is striking, given the fact that Joseph himself has undergone many changes of clothing, from the Ketonid Pasim to being in the house of Potiphar. Then he leaves his coat with Mrs. Potiphar. Then when he's summoned from jail, he changes his coat once again. Then Paro gives him a new set of clothing. So the clothing for Joseph represents ultimately. He dresses like an Egyptian. He's wearing Pharaoh's clothing. And here, the question is, when Joseph gives them changes of clothing, one might read that as preparing for living in a foreign land. We know that when Joseph leaves jail, he shaved and he changed his clothing. So they're clean shaven apparently in Pharaoh's court. And that's different. So we know that the clothing is representative of, of your identity. And if he's giving them new clothing, one might, one, might, one might think, one could think, maybe it's true, that he's preparing them for living in, in the land of Egypt. We, don't, we dress differently in the land of Egypt. The Medrash claims, the Medrash Jews in the land of Egypt 
Yes, they assimilated, but they didn't change their clothing. They wore different clothing. But over here, you have a sense that he's giving them Egyptian clothing. He gives them changes of clothing. Okay, anyway, that's as far as the brothers are concerned. Again, the tube. He sent his father 10, 10, 10 donkeys laden with the tube Mitzrayim. And he is sending also grain and bread and provisions for the, for the journey. That means the journey back, the journey to the land of Egypt. So we have Bar and Lechem and Mazon. I'll comment on that in the future as well. Now he sends his brothers off. He sends the brothers. He says to them, Now what does this mean? The translation we have in front of us is, do not be quarrelsome on the way. Some interpret Tirgazu differently. There are three different interpretations of Tirgazu. Quarrelsome is one. Don't, don't, don't argue with each other. It's one interpretation. One is don't be angry. Rogers can be anger. Don't be angry on the way. Probably relates to quarrelsome. You might argue about the sale, who was responsible for the sale of Joseph. We had this earlier. Ruben says, I told you not to do it. Joseph understands there was a division amongst the brothers. They didn't all have the same approach. Put that behind you. Don't argue about it, etc. That's one possibility. But our Tirguzu Baderech, many of the commentaries suggest that it means something different, not anger or quarrel, but fear. Don't be frightened. Don't be frightened. And they cite various places in the Bible where rogues can mean fear or trembling. And the interpretation they give is that what Joseph is saying here was sending you back to the land of Canaan <coughs> with all kinds of goods with two Mitzrayim, with all kinds of things. And, you know, you could see yourselves as being in danger because marauders, pirates could come and they could attack you. Then they see this long journey, all this, this wealth going back to Canaan. But don't be afraid, says Joseph, because Pharaoh was sending you and no one's going to start up with Pharaoh. This is a, their understanding is, don't be frightened because this is an official caravan. This is not something that I'm sending for you. This is Joseph the Viceroy with the permission of the Pharaoh sending this caravan. This is an Egyptian caravan, so don't worry about it. Nobody is going to attack. That's the view of some of the commentaries. Um, fine. By Elumi Mitzrayim, so they went up from Egypt. By it's Canaan, El Yaakov, Now they return to their father. And now we have a, one of the big questions in the Joseph story in the next verse. They told him, they say to Jacob, Joseph still lives. <coughs> Not only does he live, Not only that, he is the ruler on the whole, over the whole land of Egypt. By Lahem. <coughs> By Yafaglibo, here there are different interpretations of a word that appears not so many times in the Bible. By Yafaglibo, here the translator says his heart went numb. <coughs> it's one interpretation. And another interpretation of Yafaglibo is, I say, his heart stopped. You have the heart stopping. His heart stopped. 
He was in shock. Lo he couldn't believe it. He doesn't believe it. It's not, it's not possible. But then But then they told him everything that Joseph had said. And he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent. Yes, Pharaoh had given permission, but Joseph sent them to, to carry him, to transport him. And the spirit of Yaakov was revived. His heart had stopped. But now when he sees the wagons and he, they tell him everything Joseph had said, Jacob's spirit is revived. Here we come to one of the very fundamental questions in the Joseph story. And that is, how much does Yaakov actually know? This is a big question. In, in short, does Yaakov know the brothers had sold Joseph or intended to sell him or attempted to kill him? Does he know this? Until his dying days, he never really knows it. This is something that we'll, again, we'll encounter later on, but it's a very good question. When they said to him all the words of Joseph that Joseph had said, and the question is, what does it mean to say all the words of Joseph? Did they say what Joseph had said was, among other things, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold unto Egypt. But don't feel so bad about it that you sold me because I'm here for a purpose. I'm here to revive you, to sustain you. And all of this is part of God's plan. So don't feel so bad about it. You may have intended you sold me or caused my sale. Yes, that's all true. But God, this is part of God's plan. Right. So don't feel bad that you did it because I'm, I'm here to, to save you, etc. And if I'm, so what do you mean they said all the words of Joseph? This is one of the big puzzles in the Jacob story. Does Yaakov know the truth? Now, at the very end of the, this book, the brothers go to Joseph and say to Joseph, our father said before he died, please forgive your brothers who did evil to you. But of course, the question is, did the, are the brothers making that up? Or Yaakov actually said it. The Ramban believes that Yaakov does not know. And that when the brothers come at the end of the Chumash, end of chapter 50, the last chapter of the book, they're making up a story. They never told Yaakov. And it's very interesting that Yosef never seems to tell Yaakov either. It's interesting that Yosef, many have pointed this out, that Yosef, if the plain reading, if, if Yaakov doesn't know, and Yosef doesn't tell him, he never tells him. And um, in particular, interesting because the first thing that we ever hear about Joseph in chapter 37 is he brings back evil report to his father. It's the first thing you know about Joseph. But Joseph, remarkably, if this reading is correct, never told his father about the real Dibora. Hey, dad, you, my brother's trying to kill me. He never says that. And by the way, many have noted as well that Joseph never, when story of Mrs. Potiphar, many have pointed out, whether this be correct or not, that Joseph in the Chumash never says to Potiphar, I didn't do it. He never says a word to Potiphar. At least it's not recorded in the Torah that Joseph actually says, I'm, 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 I'm not guilty. So it is very striking that this fellow, first thing we ever hear about him is that he brings back slanderous reports or evil reports. But then in two stories, Mrs. Potiphar, there's no mention of anything Joseph says. One, one of course, could argue 
What's, who cares what he says? Potiphar won't listen to the slave. He's not going to listen to Joseph. Okay. But then in, in the story of Yaakov, it is quite interesting that Joseph, we're never told that Yosef spoke to his father and says to his father, you know, they did bad stuff, but father, I, I've, I have forgiven them. He says, nothing of the sort. So we're left to puzzle and to wonder how much Yaakov knows. And really it centers, I think, on this little few words over here in verse number 27. Right, Yosef. They said everything that Joseph had said. But what does it mean, Kol? I'll give you another example of this, by the way. Another symbol of what we don't know. That's the story that we encountered much earlier when Yaakov runs away from home and he comes to the house of Laban and he meets Rachel, he meets Rachel at the well and she goes back to her father and Yaakov, Laban comes to greet Yaakov, etc. And it says that Yaakov told Lavan everything that had happened. That's what the Torah says. Yaakov tells Lavan, I'll find that verse. Let's find that verse. Um, um, where's that verse? Yes. Yaakov comes into the house. Lavan rushes out to greet him because his relative has come. He rushes out to greet him. It's in chapter 29. I'll read it to you, verse number 13. Lovin rushes out to greet him. He hugs him. He kisses him. He brings him into his house. Maybe he remembers the servant who came with 10 camels full of, of goods. And then Yaakov tells Yosef all of these things. You are, says Lavan, my, 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 my bone and my flesh. The disappointment. And he stays for a month. What does it mean that Yaakov told him all of these things? What did he tell him? Did he say, I'm here to find a wife? I was sent to your house to find a wife? Did he say to him, I'm running away from my brother who, who's angry at me? Did he say to him, I'm running away from my brother my older brother, because I stole his, uh, his, his, his blessings. My father wanted to bless the older one. And instead I substituted, I put myself in his place and the younger one took the blessing of the older one. We don't know what he said, but what we do know is that later on, Lovin will substitute the older one for the younger one. And when Yaakov says, what's going on? I worked for Rachel. And Lovin says, in our place, we don't do that. In our place, we don't substitute the younger for the older. Is Lavan saying, I know what you told me about your place, that you took the blessing of the older one, but in our place, we don't do that. That's one possibility. Or no, Lavan is making an excuse. I'd love to help you. We have our rules. But we, the reader, know that there's a quid pro quo, that here it's the, the, the older taking the place of the younger. And in our place, that's the way it works, unlike what Yaakov did back in chapter 27. So again, it's very hard to know. You can't really know. He told Lovin all that had happened. And over here as well, the brothers told Jacob all that Yosef had said. What does all mean? Everything? I'm your brother that you sold? Does Yaakov, it's one of the big questions in the story. And maybe as we proceed to the end of the book, we'll see if there are hints in the text as to whether Yaakov knows or Yaakov doesn't know at all, or he suspects. My own personal view is that he suspects. Maybe he doesn't know for sure, but I think we can find evidence in the text that he does suspect.
In any event, we will deal with that later on. This is a very central question in the Joseph story. Now, um, fine. So now Yaakov is convinced that his son Yosef is alive. And Yaakov says in the last pasuk, back now to our chapter 45, and Yisrael said, suddenly he's called Israel. And Israel said, Yisrael said, Rav, enough. Oh, Yosef, Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now, we are about to come to chapter 46, one of the most significant chapters of the book of Breshit. We'll get to it in a few minutes, and we'll pick up next week the last class of the sessions. But here, I want to make a simple point that when Yaakov says, my son Joseph is still alive, od Yosef chai, od Yosef b'ni chai, um, what it sounds like, if you hear, if you, when you read these words, what it sounds like Yaakov is saying is, I'm an old, I'm an old man, don't know how much longer I'm gonna live. I wanna go down to Mitzrayim and see Joseph before I die. Um, it is from these words, responding to what Susie uh, said earlier, whatever Yosef may have been thinking. What is Yaakov thinking? It strikes me that Yaakov is thinking, I'm gonna go down to Mitzrayim, whether it's for a month, whether it's for two years, whether it's for five years. We don't know what he was told about how many years it's gonna be. Yosef said five years. We don't know if Yaakov knows about five years, but we don't know. But what it sounds like from this verse is that Yaakov is thinking, I wanna go down to Egypt. I wanna see my son. Then he probably plans to go back home. I'll go back to Canaan, but I wanna see him before I die. There's no, in, there's, there's no, the text does not suggest to us that Yaakov believes that he's gonna be there the rest of his life. I wanna see him before I die. I'll see him, I'll stay with him a month, two months, a year, whatever it is. And then he's gonna go back home to the land of his, of his sojournings. There's no intimation he's going actually to go beyond that, but he knows he's leaving. That he does know. And this takes us to, uh, this takes us to the chapter 46, which is a very critical chapter. It requires a fair amount of time. So let's at least begin it now. Uh, before I begin it, let me just take any comments or questions, and then we have about 10 more minutes. I have to stop a bit early today, just a couple of minutes early. Um, I, I think Sammy had a question and then yes. Aviva. Okay, let's see. I'm not hearing, they have to unmute or something. No, yeah, um, maybe Aviva go first and then I'll check that Sammy still has a question. Um, I just noticed that um, that the two lines when the brothers and um, Yaakov interact, he's Yaakov when he's the family father, but in this um, line um, 35, um, 25, Israel, that when he's going to go to Egypt from then yes, on, yes. Israel. so I wonder, if when it's Yaakov as a family man, he's Yaakov, but whether he knows it or not, his going down to Egypt is beginning Israel's sojourn in Egypt, and then he becomes Israel. Right, I think that's a very good point. In general, 
one of the big questions is when is he called Yaakov? When is he called Yisrael? Uh, your point is well taken. I would say the following that he's called Israel, I think, at moments, at great moments within the story. The chapter 46 is one of the great moments in the story, and you're certainly right. It's the beginning of the exile. And it's the beginning of the exile, not just Jacob, the person, but the exile of, of, of Israel, the people. So your point is well taken. And I happen to agree with it, but in addition, it's also there at the great, at the great moments. And this is an important moment because what Yaakov is gonna hear is that he's not going down to see his son before he dies. He's going down and staying there until he dies, actually. And that is going down there is the beginning of the exile, but God is promising to bring Yaakov back. And Yaakov's return will prefigure Israel's return. But we'll see all this in chapter 46. This is 46 are extraordinarily significant because they touch upon sort of very basic themes of the whole book of Breshit. The Joseph story in general is fascinating for two reasons, for the following reasons. First of all, it's, it's a different than any rest of the Torah. I mean, it's, it's a little novel. But what's interesting is this little novel has all kinds of connections to the rest of the book. It's, it's the conclusion of this particular book, and therefore it has all kinds of multiple, multiple connections to the rest of the book. It's fully integrated into the book, even as in a certain sense it stands apart. But we'll, we'll begin this now, and then we will pick this up next week. Was there any other comment? Yeah, I saw a couple of comments. Yes, I think Neva and uh, Kenny yes. want to ask your questions. I um, I just wondered, apropos of Susie's question, and apropos of uh, you know, does does Yaakov know how long um, how long he's going for? Did did Yaakov know about the Brit Ben Habitarim and that it was foretold that that uh, the people of Israel would be in Egypt for a long time? It's very hard to know whether he knows about. It. I, I I suspect he does know. Yeah. If he doesn't know, he's going to find out right away. Uh, I think he does know, but we will deal with that question. It's one of the central questions. Whether he knows or not, he's going to be told this in the beginning of chapter 46. Chapter 46 is a chapter that brings together a lot of pieces in the book of Breshit. Uh, we'll see. We, we start to read it. You'll see right away. And uh, yes, he's going to be told in, in the very next chapter that the exile begins. And I think he does understand that is a covenantal piece to it, which he, which he actually accepts. He actually embraces it, uh, mm -hmm. as we will see uh, when we begin our study. Um, yeah, the one more, there was one more comment, Kenny, was it? Kenny and I think Lila as well. Okay, which let's hear. class is blessed with many uh, excellent Good. question okay, answers. That's all right, go ahead. Um, would one of you like to unmute to ask your question or I can just read it out? You want Kenny to go first or I think he was Doesn't first. Matter. Go for it, Lila. You're on. I was just going to say to last week. I know you mentioned that, you know, there's similarities between Esther and Joseph, that both of them were kind of to these like twists of fate that placed them in this, you know, um, like, you know, important position that you know saved them the Jewish people or whatever but they're also I mean kind of in a way you know aren't they I mean isn't Esther she's a Benjaminite and then Joseph he's been there's not half 
Um, Lila, your internet just cut out for a second there. Do you mind repeating that last sentence? So that, you know, Joseph and Esther are kind of cousins in a way because Esther is from Benjamin and then Joseph is a brother, but he's the whole, only whole brother of Benjamin. So are they kind of, is there a connection with that? And There are, look, there are many, many, many connections between the book of Esther and the Joseph. I once counted 50 different connections in terms of language and theme, et cetera. There are also important differences between them. The, the main point of the, one of the main parallels is that they're both stories of exile. How do you live in exile? That's the Joseph story. Joseph himself is both a Egyptian, and not only an Egyptian, he's the viceroy of Egypt with his uh, chariot and with his name and married to the priesthood, but he's also a Jew. And then the question is, how does one navigate those, those two worlds? That's Joseph's story. And the Esther story, of course, is that way. That's all about living in Esther herself as a fully assimilated Jew. No one even yeah. knows she is a Jew. And how does one deal with the reality of the culture of Mitzrayim, which is also true of the Megillah? There are, of course, very important differences between the two stories. And one of them is that the Joseph story ends, we haven't gotten there yet, with Joseph telling the brothers, someday God will bring us back to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Megillah does not say that at all. As far as the Megillah is concerned, it sounds like this is where, for this time, this is where we are. There's no sense of return in the Megillah, in my view. So there are all kinds of important differences between them, but what's common to both is how do you live in this culture and maintain your Jewish identity on one hand? In the Megillah, it's not just Jewish identity, nor in Joseph's case, how do you, how do you maintain your sense, of, your sense of right and wrong, your sense of morality when you live in a world in which expediency is, is everything and you take, you take what you see basically, which is Mitzrayim, seeing and taking. So those are the, but there are many, many parallels between the two, but at the core of it, it's living in exile. That means in a place where God doesn't speak. At least in mm -hmm. the case of Joseph, there were dreams. In the case of the Megillah, God's never mentioned altogether. And that's really the challenge of the Megillah, but it's very deeply connected to, but there are all kinds of distinctions between the two. Okay, let me take Kenny's comment and I will have to stop. Yeah, go ahead. Um, yes, Kenny, Kenny's comment is on uh, Yaakov, the natural reaction of Yaakov. Why, ha why hasn't Yosef com contacted me in all these years? Right, so the, some people, I, some, some, I read once, I think there's a little book by Maurice Samuel. He sort of writes about the Bible, whatever. And he, he quite says that Joseph... Jacob went into shock, he says, Samuel, because he was, if he's still alive, where, where's he been all these years, you know? That's, that was, that's Marie Samuel's comment about it. And of course, it is a good question. Uh, it cuts to the question of Joseph, and we mentioned this earlier today, basically, you know, connecting, right? I mean, I had my interpretation why he, why he doesn't contact Yaakov, which is not that the text ever makes that suggestion that he could, but he says, I, I, I want to forget my past. He says it clearly. I want to forget my father's house. I want to forget my past, etc. That's what he says. So uh, you can't forget part of your past. You forget it all. And that's what Joseph is thinking. Now, he wants to forget. But it's, a, you know, and, and as we saw just a few, a little while ago, once you open up the door to um, the possibility of connecting to your brothers, right away, there's going to be a problem because Paro has his own conception of the brothers coming to Egypt. And Paro's conception is assimilate them into my land. 
and the tool, and we talked about that before. So it's not a simple matter for Joseph, but yes, he said, in fact, he said it. I want to forget my past. I want to forget my father's house, etc. And Jacob is perhaps that part of it. Part of, part of it is it's an unbelievable story. How could it be? I thought he was not only he's not lost, but he's the head, he's, he's the head of Egypt. What? How's that possible? I want to see him before I die. I mean, we'll have to stop at this point. We'll pick up next, maybe I'll give a few extra minutes next week. And we will next week, the great chapter 46. So that's that'll be the last of these sessions. It's one of the critical chapters of the book of Breshit. Very much look forward. We have the 12 o'clock today. We have the Rappaport Memorial Lecture. Should be very interesting. I'm going to say it. Prepare us for Pesach. I'm going to have to get off at this point. So looking forward to learning again with all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rabbi Silva, and thank you to all our participants. I just put the link to sign up for the Rappaport lecture in the chat. So if anyone wants to sign up for that at 12 o'clock today, Eastern time, I highly, highly recommend it. And just to let people know that as a consequence, uh, Rabbi Dr. Samuel Lieben's Midrash class will be half an hour later than usual. I know a lot of people from this class also go to that. Usually it's at one o'clock Eastern. Today it's at 1.30 Eastern. Um, so I will see you all next week for the uh, last of our um, classes with Rabbi Silber this uh, Zman. And yeah. Thank you, everyone.